Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. Join us every other Wednesday when we discuss all things dogs, from health and veterinary care to training and behavior science, as well as the ins and outs of Good Dog and how our platform can help you successfully run your breeding program. Follow us and join Good Dog's mission to build a better world for our dogs and the people who love them. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Nate Ritter, the staff veterinarian here at Good Dog. Today, I'm very excited to welcome back a special guest, Dr. Greg Burns. You may have heard him on our podcast previously or seen him on one of our webinars. He was a member of our health symposium last year. So very excited to welcome him back. We went over his intro previously, but I'll repeat it here for any new listeners. Dr. Burns is a board-certified theriogenologist, originally from Phoenix, Arizona. He received his DVM from Colorado State University in 1996 and entered small animal general practice in Phoenix. Upon returning to Colorado in 2000, he worked as an associate veterinarian at a South Mesa Veterinary Hospital in Fort Collins, where he eventually served as medical director for 18 years. While at South Mesa, he developed the small animal reproduction department, which included an international semen freezing and storage facility. Dr. Burns received diplomat status in the American College of Theriogenologists in 2009, He's currently an assistant professor of small animal reproduction at Colorado State University. So welcome, Dr. Burns. Yeah, thanks for having me. Of course. So today, we're going to be talking about a very interesting topic, multiple sire litters. I think a good place to start, if you could explain for our listeners what exactly multiple sire litters are. Yeah, so when a female conceives from two different males in the same litter, at least two different males. So it used to be called dual sire. Now it's the most appropriate term is multiple sire because sometimes there's more than two males used. And the offspring are born from different sires in the same litter. And so that's basically the definition of a multiple sire litter. Thank you. Can you explain a little bit more about the dog's reproductive biology as to why a litter could have multiple sires, how this is even possible? Yeah. So the canine, they're litter bearing species. So that's the first thing is that they routinely ovulate more than one egg that can be fertilized. And that's normal for litter-bearing species. So that's the first big thing in my mind that they have going for them for multiple sires. And the other thing that I think about a lot with their cycle is receptivity. And I think that's pretty unique to canines, at least in our domestic population, is that they're receptive for longer than many species, many domestic species. So for example, that proestrous period that they go through averages nine days. And some of them are receptive in that period to start with. And then you go through that estrous phase that averages nine days also, and they're typically receptive that whole time. So they're receptive to breeding that whole time. So that's a long time to be receptive, say, compared to a cow who's receptive for a very short period of time. So I think that receptivity has something to do with it also. And then the other thing that they have is their fertility period, that period where the egg can actually be fertilized by the sperm, that's 72 hours in the canines. So that period is a little bit longer as well when you compare that to other domestic species. So really their biology is pretty much set up to have that multiple sires if desired. They have a lot of things going for them in that way. Yeah, no, they certainly do. And I think, like you said, if it should be desired. So why would a breeder choose to breed their dam with multiple males? Yeah. And, you know, this isn't new. It's been approved, at least by the AKC, since 2000. So we've been thinking about this for over 20 years. They even went back a couple more years so you could register litters, I think, starting in about 98 from dual sires, at least with AKC. 
So when I think of it, again, I think of it in two different populations. I think of the working dog population, which they want to increase their genetic gain as quick as possible. And so their genetic gain would be their genetic improvement, right? So that would be for either detector dogs or seeing eye dogs, things like that. So however they define their genetic improvement, they want to increase that as quick as possible. And then I think about the other population of breeders like confirmation dogs and performance dogs. And they want to, I think they think of it maybe a little bit differently, maybe genetic diversity. So they would be able to see the offspring from two different males in one litter. And so I think that becomes really important in our canine population because really when you're talking about the female, her prime reproductive years are two to four years old. And so her genetics are really just important as the males in many instances, but she's limited. We can't freeze embryos and things like that in the canine now. We can freeze sperm and keep it for 50 years, but we need to help her genetics along as much as we can. So I think a lot of them think of that piece as well in conjunction with the sperm samples that might be weakened, the older boys or the post-op motilities that we get with frozen samples, say less than 50%, they don't want to waste that female cycle. So those are just a few reasons why I think this might be becoming more popular. Sure. And you spoke to the semen being utilized in these cases. Would you say that AI is more effective in these instances, or do you think natural breeding is preferred when trying for a multiple sire litter? Yeah, that's really a good question. They really do need help when we're using these attenuated samples, right? So if we're using frozen thawed samples, or if we're using even chilled samples, or perhaps maybe an older boy who may not have as good of a sample, I think artificial insemination would definitely be desired. I have heard of those instances where the boys are similar age, similar semen quality, and they do natural breedings back to back with success. And those primarily I've heard in some working dog populations. But yeah, I think AI for sure in most instances would be preferable. Great. And I know you've spoken to some of these points in in our previous questions, but what are some potential advantages and disadvantages to this breeding method? Yeah, mostly when you think about, again, the female's genetics and not wasting her cycles. Because really, again, after four years old, the whelping rate and the litter sizes decline significantly in most of our individuals. It's a little bit breed and size specific, but they do decline. So we need to help her genetics along. So by not wasting her cycles, I think that's probably the biggest advantage. The other advantage kind of that we talked about is you give that older boy's sperm sample the opportunity maybe to do something without wasting the cycle. So there's that piece also. And maybe improving confirmation performance, genetics more efficiently, quicker by dual sires. I think that would be probably an advantage, maybe increased genetic diversity, that sort of thing. The disadvantages, I think mostly additional costs. So there's that, whether it's stud fees, whether it's the semen, you know, ordering the semen, your veterinary costs are more because typically, like we talked about, you're talking about TCI or artificial insemination. DNA, that's another one that is increased cost because you have to DNA everybody. Those, I think, would be most of the disadvantages. Also, I think you need to find a veterinarian who's comfortable with it and who's maybe done it before. I think that might be helpful, too. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, you spoke to the cost of DNA, you know, for our breeders that may not know, 
how can they know who the individual puppy's father is? Do you obviously recommend doing DNA testing in all these instances? Yeah, for sure. And the rules have changed just recently. I think just the end of last year, at least with AKC registered litters. So AKC changed the way that they do their DNA analysis. So they switch to these things called SNPs, and it, it's not unique to them, but they're using their own DNA registry and their own process. So anybody who was interested in registering the litter with AKC would have to go through the AKC for the parentage. So there's that piece. Some of them are already done. So the AKC, if it's a common boy that's been used before, say, seven times in his lifetime, their DNA has to be on file anyway. Or if they're used three times or more in a year, their DNA is required to be on file with the AKC. But the deal is all of the participants, however many males, the female and all the offspring have to be DNA. And it's pretty easy. Cheek swabs typically are what's done. It's sent in and, you know, it's pretty easy. There is a fee with AKC to interpret it, but it's not a big fee. Then they'll interpret it and tell you parentage based on that. Sure. You spoke during the AI question relating to kind of breed and size having an impact in terms of multiple sire litters, have you seen more success with particular breeds or particular sizes of dogs? Is there any kind of correlation there? Yeah, that's interesting. So the paper that I was involved in a few years ago did show an increase in litter size and also in whelping rate. I'm using that whelping rate. It's not really conception, it's whelping rate is the way we look at that. But you can think of it as conception. So they whelped more often and they had a bigger litter size when dual sires were used. So I thought that was interesting that came out of that paper for sure. Definitely. And have you seen this method have more success in particular breeds? I'm sure this is, like you said, relatively new within the past couple of decades, so the research might not be there. But any particular breeds that you might not recommend it or others that you say (laughs) will see the more success for? So I have not seen that. But I will say, just in general, speaking of certain breeds, or just fertility in general. So there's that piece. And then there's a piece in using attenuated or weakened samples. We definitely see breed differences. And so I think that brings up a good point too, is that you have to have the right expectations when you're doing this. And when you're breeding in general, I think you have to have the right expectations, but I don't think we know enough yet about real breed differences. Sure. All right, everyone, you are listening to the Good Dog Pod. We'll be right back. Enjoy the best of Good Dog from the palm of your hand with the Good Breeder mobile app. Good Breeders can use the mobile app to seamlessly and easily manage their programs on the go. Whether you're shuttling puppies to vet appointments or coordinating airport pickups, you never have to worry about missing a second of managing your program. From the app, you can access your inbox where you can search for a specific conversation with a buyer by name. You can share photos and videos with your applicants directly from your phone. You can match them with a puppy or a litter and send them documents and payment requests directly in the conversation thread. So you can keep all of your applicants' information organized and in one place. You can also add and update litters and breeding dogs, request secure deposits and puppy payments, as well as access your profile, account settings, and all of Good Dog's resources, benefits, and support that you know and love from the desktop version. The Good Breeder mobile app can only be accessed by members of our Good Breeder community, and the app is available for both iOS and Android users. You can find it by searching Good Dog Breeder in the Apple or Google Play stores. Download today. You have questions, Good Dog has answers. Thanks for submitting your questions to Good Dog's Mailbag. 
Today we have our resident veterinarian, Dr. Nate Ritter here to answer a question from a listener. The question is, is there any flea, tick, or heartworm medication that's safe to administer to pregnant or nursing dogs? Most package inserts specifically note that they have not been tested on pregnant or nursing dogs. Some even say you should consult with your vet. Well, my vet said that if they don't know the answer, then neither does she. Help. (laughs) Yeah, fantastic question. So there are medications that are safe. And just because a product hasn't been tested on pregnant and nursing dogs doesn't necessarily mean that it is not safe, which is why and oftentimes it will say consult your veterinarian to Mm -hmm. determine whether it's appropriate to administer. However, you know, if it was my dog, I would prefer to administer one where that testing has been performed. And so ensure you work with your veterinarian regarding this, but there are different medications out there. Just for a couple of examples, Frontline Plus, HeartGuard Plus, Revolution, and TriHeart Plus. So those do exist. I want you all to read the product label to look at safety specifically for pregnant nursing dogs. That's where you'll be able to find that information as to whether they say it is safe, not safe, or has not been tested. And then work with your veterinarian to make the best decision for your dog and your program. Great. Thank you so much for answering our mailbag question today. Back to the paper that you were discussing. In 2020, the study found of 29 dual-sired litters that only 30% resulted in a litter of mixed parentage. Why is that percentage so low? So historically, anecdotally, and this was one of the first papers that actually looked at it, what the rate is and percentages and things like that. But historically, if you go back and look at literature with anecdotal reports, so not official studies, but people's experiences, they report less than 1% dual sire litters being born or pups being born when bred with more than one sire to each sire. So the 30% compared to that, obviously, is really high. So there's that part. The other thing, too, is that we found that higher whelping rate compared to the single sired litters. And I thought that was interesting, too. So so almost 90% of those girls became pregnant versus about 76% pregnancy rate with the single sired litters. So I thought that piece in our paper was pretty interesting also. But that 30%, actually, when you think about it, because the first sample that's used is not as good a quality as the second sample that was used. I thought the 30% was reasonable. Definitely. Any possible explanation for that difference in the whelping rate that you just mentioned? I think that was definitely interesting between the two. I don't know about that, honestly. There's all kinds of theories out there, what the environment is when there's more than one sample introduced, but then you have to deal with the competition piece, you know, the sperm competition piece, that's a real thing. So I don't know. I'm not positive about that, but it was a pretty interesting finding for us. Oh, definitely. Fair enough. Additionally, you touched on this. The puppies from the multiple sired litters were more likely to have the second sire as the dad than the first sire. But when only one dog semen was successful, there was a 50-50 chance of it being the first or second sire. Can you translate these results for our listeners and what might be involved in planning for the dual sire litter? Yeah, yeah. And expectation, right? I think that's important is to have the right expectations. So when you follow the protocol that we used to break it down, and I know you read that paper, it's a pretty complicated results section in that paper to try to keep everybody straight. So here's kind of breaking it down. 30% chance of having the dual sire offspring when using that protocol. About 27% of those were from the first sire and about 73, 74% were from the second sire. So you get more from the second sire than the first sire. So that leaves about a 70% chance that you'll have a single sired litter 
when you breed with multiple sires, at least with dual sire like we did. So of those 50-50 were from either sire. And that's that interesting point, right? Oh, wow. How come 50% were from either sire? And, you know, we're using that weakened sample on that first sire. And we have to qualify that a little bit. When I say a lower quality sample, we're talking 55% post-thaw on average versus 70% post-thaw on average. And I think that's important to point out because historically that's been what we would consider average or a little above average post-thaw motility, where the 70% would be considered excellent post-thaw motility. So while it is worse, it's really not bad uh, sample. What we kind of struggle with these days with these dual sires and the request for them is the first sire is always a bad one. I mean bad, like 40% or 30% post-off. Or for example, an eight or 10-year-old male. And so both of those are much different than say using a 55% considered average or a little above average good samples. So there's that piece also. So you just have to have that right expectation. As far as why there was 50-50, we don't know. We really don't know. There's all kinds of theories about that. Much more research, though, is going to be needed to decide why that happened that way. Pretty interesting, though. But when you take the overall parentage ratio and include the offspring that were bred with dual sire that just whelped from one of the single sires, the parentage ratio overall, the semen quality wasn't affected when you take the overall numbers. So, yeah, pretty interesting. So the point of that is if you have that, you might as well go for it because there's a fair chance that you're going to get offspring from that first sire that you really desire, you know, that might not be quite as good as that second one. At least that's what we found. No, very interesting. And you spoke to using different semen samples of different quality relating to your procedure. You mentioned the lower quality sample being used first, thought process kind of behind that. Yeah, it's funny. Again, lots of theories on that, but I think the easiest way to think of it is we're given that one a head start. We're given that weakened sample, that lower quality sample a head start. So that head start is typically at least 24 hours. In our paper, it was 24 hours. So it gives that sample the opportunity to go meet those eggs that are ready to be fertilized first. And so it gives them really a 24-hour heads up. Again, there's much more to that and lots of physiology that needs to be looked at. But really to give that weakened sample a 24-hour heads up or head start is the way to go. Gotcha. Yeah, well, is there anything else that you can think of that our readers or listeners should know about planning a multiple sire litter? Anything we didn't cover in our questions? The one thing you just said is planning, right? So for the best possible outcomes is having the appropriate age dam, two to four years old, appropriate age, and having that expectation that if you're using a weakened sample, and I think this is where that 1% came from anecdotally, because honestly, I think they were using just these samples that were so poor quality, 30%, 40% low quality. I don't think you're going to get the same numbers that we found. So you have to have the right expectation. So having that expectation, doing the planning, being ready for the additional cost, whatever the registration cost, the DNA cost, your extra veterinary cost, I think having all that planning in place is most important. And then having the right expectations for the most positive outcome. Absolutely. And relating to that, in terms of planning, breeders that may not be as familiar with this, I mean, I think it's so important to have someone experienced in reproduction to be able to help them on this journey. I mean, thinking just from my time in general practice, 
if I had a client come in and started to ask about this, I would certainly refer. So any recommendations in terms of where people might be able to find those resources if their own local physician isn't able to help them relating to this topic? Yeah, for sure. So there is a society for theriogenology and there's a registry there with veterinarians who have a specific interest in reproduction. And they're not all board certified theriogenologists, nor do they need to be, but they need to have that level of experience and expertise in order for the most positive outcomes. So I think that's probably the best place to find somebody in your area or in your state. And you can narrow it down by region or state or whatever. And then they'll have their specific area of interest as far as do they do TCI or are they comfortable with frozen semen, that sort of thing. So I think that SFT or Society for Theriogenology website is probably the best resource for that. All right. Fantastic. Well, thank you all so much for listening to today's episode of The Good Dog Pod. We're so happy we could have Dr. Burns join us again to teach us more about this topic. Thank you again for joining us. We'll see you back here in June for our next episode all about summer safety and disaster preparedness for your dogs. Thank you for listening to The Good Dog Pod. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode, so be sure to subscribe to The Good Dog Pod on your favorite podcast platform.